Pages of Pim Better Podcast. Greetings, Voyagers. Welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. This is episode number 116. My guest today is named Brian Hio. He was on number 92 of this podcast. That one was called Politics in Taiwan. This one is a little bit about Taiwan, but a lot bit about Hong Kong. If you are watching the news at all right now, you will see that there have been uh, really large protests going on in Hong Kong due to the fact that China has proposed an extradition bill that would extradite people accused of violating Chinese law to China for trial and potential punishment. Um, I am not incredibly well-versed in this topic, and that's why I had Brian on. Brian is really, really brilliant. Um, same as last time, I was just kind of blown away by uh, how much knowledge he has. And uh, I think he's a really great political journalist. He writes also for Popula, and that sometimes is, uh, you know, it's like social commentary and some silly stuff mixed in with some pretty serious stuff. So I would uh, implore you to go over to New Bloom and to Popula to see his writing. You can check out the show notes for this episode and click the links and that will take you over to those websites as well so that you could check it out. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess that's all I'll do for this intro today. Uh, this one's not super long, but it's packed full of information. We recorded from, you know, link from New York over to Taiwan. So it sort of lags a little bit at times, but actually it doesn't really affect the conversation. Um, I mean, you'll hear it. I think it sounds good. All right. Right before I sign off here, I will say that if you want to support the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast, you can do so on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash the voyages of Tim Vetter, and that will take you to my subscription page where you can give monthly. That's whatever you can give, 50 cents, $1, $5, $500. And that will all going to that will all go into keeping these stories going, uh, the travel going. I'm going to Morocco soon, so hopefully I'll have some cool episodes from Morocco for you all. If you can't give financially, I get it. Times are tough. You can spread the word, word of mouth. You can share this podcast with people. You can check me out on uh, social media. You can go on iTunes or any other podcast service and leave a five star rating and review. All those things are super helpful. All right, folks, here's my little interlude music and then my conversation with Brian. Enjoy. Yeah, I mean, so yeah, I was going to ask you, like, when was the last time that you slept? Um, when was the last time I slept? That's a good question. I've been <laughs> awake for probably around, uh, let's see, I want to say about 8 a.m. So that would make it around over, what, 20, around 20. And I only slept for two and a half hours um, because I went to sleep at 8 a.m. like after 10, 20 um, in my hotel in Hong Kong. Uh, because of the fact that there was a rumor going around that they were going to try to force the bill through at 10.30 a.m. And so I woke up at, at uh, 10.20. I, uh, you know, just sat around for a while and watched the news and to see if they were actually pushing through the bill 
um, through the legislature, and that wasn't happening. And so I went back to state for, you know, uh, 20 more minutes, about about 11, uh, because I had another interview with another podcast. And so it's, it's been kind of crazy. Oh, my <laughs> God. All right. So. I'm going to start somewhere different to begin. Uh, right now, it is Pride Month, and the last time that I had you on, we talked about how there were referendums for marriage equality in Taiwan and how those were voted down. But since the time that you've been on the podcast, there's been a reversal of sorts. So I'm wondering if you can just talk about um, what that vote was and sort of like how that got uh, elected or how that got voted on. Yeah, so the Taiwanese legislature did pass gay marriage. Um, it's not exactly full marriage equality, but it is a fairly strong version of civil partnerships, I would say, because uh, um, same-sex couples are still not allowed to adopt children unless they are the biological children of one of that couple. And similarly, um, a Taiwanese person can only get married to a foreign individual of the same sex if both of those countries have legalized gay marriage. And so that's one of the issues. But actually, it is interesting because during the referendum, uh, it did seem like gay marriage was voted down by the Taiwanese public. But at the same time, the Tsai administration and the DPP were still willing to push through with this, uh, this uh, with, with gay marriage, um, despite the fact that this leaves them open to the accusation that they were shrugging off the wishes of the public. Um, I mean, that has resulted in Taiwan being hailed as the first country in Asia to legalize gay marriage. Uh, at the same time, it is still uh, has given ammunition to opponents of gay marriage who accuse the Thai administration of being undemocratic. Yeah, and there, I believe today was a primary, or was or was it yesterday? Um, yeah, that was uh, well, I guess yesterday at this point. And there was the uh, it was the end of the primary, and Tsai Ing-wen did win the DPP nomination to be the next presidential candidate. Um, there's a divide in the DPP, the Democratic Progressive Party, between the people that are more progressive and more conservative, also those who are more emphatic on the issue of Chinese independence, and those who are, um, you know, more pragmatic, you could say. And oftentimes, the split between you know progressive and conservative, uh, between pragmatic and kind of diehard pro-independence, is between young and old people. And so, between her and the other candidate, Tai seems to be supported by more young people, and Lai was supported by an older demographic. And although actually Lai also did claim he was in support of gay marriage, he didn't do too, too much about that issue. And it is known that many of his backers are older, conservative, Christian actually. And so they would not be so friendly or amenable to the idea of legalizing gay marriage in Taiwan. Yeah, this is something that we talked about last time. And I think it's something that you're seeing. I mean, you know, politics is always... Uh, pretty split, but it seems that in a lot of countries nowadays, like uh, politics are almost evenly split as close to like 50-50 as possible in terms of like where voters are voting. When it comes time for that uh, presidential election, like how how do you see that going? Um, that's a good question because I think that it depends on who ties up against from the KMT and whether there are any third party candidates that all seek to run. Um, the KMT right now, uh, you have these kind of established politicians, Eric Chu and, uh, you know, Wang Jingping originally, but he already announced he was withdraw. And uh, then you have these kind of crazy new populists, such as Terry Goh and Han Goryu. Um, Terry Goh is infamous as the CEO of Foxconn, and he is also not a traditional politician. He just kind of jumped into the race. It's known for a long time that he has had presidential ambitions that he could potentially even fund his own campaign uh, because he is Taiwan's richest man. Uh, but he is running for president this time, and he's contending with Han Goryu, the maverick mayor of Kaohsiung, who has a very different political style than other KMT politicians. He's not very polished. He speaks very coarsely. He says a lot, a lot of times he says the wrong thing, 
and he plays it up to be a kind of man of the people. And, you know, Hanko were, so, I mean, I mean uh, Terry, despite being, again, richest man in Taiwan, will all play up this kind of a, a very everyman image that he worked his way up from poverty to wealth, that he is actually an everyman, and that because he has money, he is free from the corruption of politics. And so who is tie up against? It's a good question. It depends on which one. Um, and there's other possibilities, such as if Ko Wenzhou, the highly popular mayor of Taiwan, also decides to run, or if you see other third candidates. I mean, that's also possible. I mean, Terry Goh, for example, if he doesn't get the nomination, it's, it's possible to run as an independent. He can always fund his own campaign. Wow. So that sounds about as muddy as uh, our politics right now, as we have like 30 plus uh, potential Democratic candidates who are going to be running in the, right. in the primary. And, uh, yeah. and we, we vote here, I think, in New York in just like about a week. Um, Okay. Wow. First of all, thank you for all that. Uh, again, you are super, super knowledgeable about this stuff, so I appreciate you having you on. Um, obviously, oh, like a, a big thing probably that people are, are hearing about if they're watching the news is something's happening in, in Hong Kong. Now, before mm. we even get to what's happening, I think maybe we should provide people with like just a little brief history uh, to sort of set the context. Um, what is Hong Kong's place in... I don't want to say necessarily like the political sphere, but sphere, but like where are they at in terms of being uh, like the governors of their own uh, autonomy and sovereignty in in relation to like their relationship with China? Yeah, it is actually a very interesting question. Yeah, um, I mean Hong Kong was formerly a British colony. Um, it was handed back to Chinese control in 1997. However. Uh, China claimed that the government system of Hong Kong would remain unchanged for 50 years. And so it was not until 2047 that we were supposed to be seeing changes in their government structure. Um, that did not happen, and changes happened uh, much faster. Um, the interesting thing, actually, with Hong Kong is that uh, the claim that by the protesters that they're defending democracy. However, Hong Kong was not exactly so democratic under British colonial rule either. Uh, democracy was that introduced in the lead-up to the handover uh, of Hong Kong to Chinese control. And um, that being said, it has become something that is highly prized by Hong Kongers. Hong Kongers do not wish to give up their ability to decide their own leaders. Um, even then, though, that being said, Hong Kong is a very unique government system in which uh, business interests are directly allowed to vote for representatives in um, the legislature. For example, architectural, architectural companies and business groups and so forth, they can vote on someone to represent their interests directly in the legislature. And so that kind of oh. takes corporatism to the next level. And so there actually are questions about how exactly democratic Hong Kong is. Um, but at the same time, maybe as, well, even if it has never really been fully democratic, the Chinese Communist Party has no intention of allowing uh, Hong Kongers to be able to choose their leaders in any form. And so now if you try to run for election, but you have views that the Chinese Communist Party does not like, you can be prevented from running. Um, if you run, you win, and the Communist Party decides they don't like your views, you can be removed from office or even jailed or attacked in the streets. And so it is you see the deterioration of the ability to have any form of genuine suffrage in Hong Kong. And in, with that, you also have the deterioration of press freedoms and the threat to Hong Kongers of being persecuted by China on these grounds of expressing political dissidents or of doing things that are legal in Hong Kong but legal, illegal in China and being persecuted as though they were just another Chinese citizen. And so that is what is at stake now with a lot of these issues. Or with the other social movements that erupted in the past years, such as the 2014 Umbrella Movement. Yeah, wow. There's a lot in there. 
maybe more simply, I hear you referring to people from Hong Kong as Hong Kongers. So I'm assuming then also um, because of the years under British rule um, and the fact that the handover was somewhat recent, that people from Hong Kong do not view themselves as Chinese. Is that accurate? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's one way to put it. And it's actually very interesting because after the handover to China, then you do see this kind of concretization of a Hong Kong identity. Um, I mean, you see something similar in Taiwan in which once you start actually having contact with mainland Chinese, then your Taiwanese identity becomes uh, more solidified and you define yourself as different. And that happened in Hong Kong as well, um, particularly with an influx of Chinese immigrants into Hong Kong. And, you know, you have concerns about the identity, for example, increasing amounts of uh, Mandarin spoken in Hong Kong uh, and less Cantonese, or the uh, use of simplified characters versus traditional characters that you sometimes will see in the public in some places. And so um, there's concern about Hong Kong identity. For example, actually, it's very interesting just emerging, watching the emergence of this, this form of identity. For example, five years ago during the Umbrella Movement, which was also a protest against uh, Chinese attempts to kind of limit Hong Kong's democratic freedoms, the notion of Hong Kong independence was an absurd idea and nobody discussed it and it was just kind of very fringe. But now it is an idea that is out, much more out there in the open, actually pushing for independence and seeing Hong Kong as a kind of sort of city-state becoming maybe even a country. And so one way to understand these issues is also just the rise of Hong Kong identity versus Chinese identity. Yeah, I mean, something I think that might also just blow people's minds is like, um, effectively Hong Kong was a colony and, you know, mm. you read in your history books here when you, when you, uh, take classes in the States that, uh, like colonization ended quite a long time ago. And after directly after world war two countries didn't want to be associated with what Nazi Germany had been trying to do by expanding through force. And so they started to, to give up their colonies, um, maybe for be- a lack of a better term, but the fact that, uh, Britain remained in in control of Hong Kong until like 1991. Uh, You know, I don't quite recall that period of my life, like being someone that read the news and things like that. But like, was there like a a large uh, global push for them to to give up Hong Kong? Like, was there uh, any support lended towards allowing Hong Kong to be its own sovereign nation? Um, It was in 1997, but it was actually uh, part of the rental agreement with the you know, the treaty that by which Hong Kong was ceded to British rule for so long, I believe the period 99 years. And so it was a deadline and that deadline was kind of a looming overhead. Um, and, you know, I mean, China attempted to kind of off worries that Hong Kong would just become uh, authoritarian once it was reverted to Chinese control by give, giving another deadline, offering uh, 50 years of one country, two systems and having this, uh, this, this claim that the system would remain unchanged until 2047. Um, you know, again, as you mentioned, that uh, there was this call for countries to give up their colonies. I feel like maybe Britain, when they came up with this notion of a uh, 99-year rental period for them way back then, wondered, you know, they just thought it would be indefinite and that after uh, 99 years, they would have assimilated the population so much that they would just be integrated into the British Empire. And that was obviously not the case, um, but the decline of the British Empire and so forth. Um, and I think that... Uh, Another reason why I think actually you do see, for example, democratic reforms in Hong Kong near the very end of the British colonial period is because of criticisms from the National Committee that then you are just ceding Hong Kong to authoritarian Chinese rule. I think particularly because the, the 1997 handover took place in which the memory of Tiananmen Square was very fresh because that had taken place yeah. just about eight years earlier. Wow. Okay. So as usual, man, you are... Uh, <laughs> 
a human encyclopedia. This is amazing. Thank you. Um, what specifically was in the bill, the extradition bill that, um, you know, has, has Hong Kongers so upset? It's actually very interesting for me because I feel like this could have been one of many issues that upset Hong Kongers and throws them out into the streets against protest um, because of the fact that there are all these issues at stake. It could have been the, uh, for example, just candidates being blocked from running for office or being disqualified after taking office or being attacked or being jailed, but it was this extradition law. And maybe because that does affect every single Hong Konger, whether they like it or not, they could be arbitrarily maybe detained, arrested, and sent to China to face jail time or worse. Um, the extradition law is interesting because, you know, China um, actually kidnapped uh, five booksellers that published books critical of Chinese President Xi Jinping. And some of them were kidnapped from within Hong Kong. They appeared within China and they claimed that they had done these crimes in the past. They wanted to repent. And so that's why they had voluntarily gone to China. And the ladies were not real. And they were extracted forcibly. But uh, it's not just that. It's not that China wants to just be able to clandestinely kidnap people to send them to China and to face jail time or worse. Um, it is also that they want to be able to do this openly. And so that is, it is fear that this could lead to the kind of unraveling of a lot of uh, Hong Kong's democratic freedom, the judicial system, and so forth. Um, for example, the independence of the Hong Kong judiciary could be undermined because of the fact that judges may make rulings with a knowledge that if they don't comply with Beijing's will, they could potentially be sent to China uh, to face jail time. And so oh. this, this is a, a, a potential to affect all sections of and Hong Kong politics as a whole. Wow. Okay. Um, so I guess maybe it, it, in simplest terms for people, the extradition bill essentially is saying that people can be extradited to China uh, for breaking it. Yeah. Is it a, like a felony, a specific law? or For, for Chinese law. Um, for Chinese law. But it's fear that that would be very arbitrary. Um, right. you know, China is not exactly a country with the rule of law and there's a high rate of convictions and law is used as a weapon against political dissidents. Um, and there's also no freedom of press or expression in that sense. Is this a proposed bill or this is something that was passed? Uh, it's proposed. It's still to be voted on. Um, for example, on Wednesday, that was the day originally that they were supposed to have the second reading of the bill. Um, you need the second reading, then to vote on the bill, and then after the third reading, it passes. To my knowledge, that is the procedure. Um, and so a lot of the actions have been coordinated to try to block this process to prevent this bill from passing. Um, but there's also fear that the uh, the pro-Beijing camp within the legislature will kind of just secretly try to pass this bill somehow. They'll, they'll try to force it through or ram it through when people aren't paying attention. And so there's this kind of worriedness. Uh, but it's actually kind of remarkable to me that, you know, people are able to mobilize over a matter that Beijing could have just claimed as a complicated legal matter that, you know, everyday people, ordinary people should not think about too much or be concerned with. Right. Wow. Okay. So you... Um you were just there. You mentioned like right before I hit record that you're going to go back to Hong Kong. But, uh, you know, like what were your experiences? What are you seeing on the ground there? Um, it's quite interesting, actually, because uh, there was this attempt on Wednesday to, well, there's a protest action that was declared on Tuesday night. And it was just very ambiguous as to what it consists of. It was just declared online. It was even unclear what time it would take place. But then 2,000 maybe or so, I think probably it was over 1,000 maybe 2,000 young people, mostly young people, just showed up there expecting something to happen. And it was very fluid. Um, you know, there was some tension with the police. And then they ended up just in Tamar Park, which is next to the legislature, and just kept that overnight. And then by morning, they had built some structures, almost reminiscent of the umbrella movement occupation five years ago, such as supply centers. Uh, they recreated the democracy wall, 
was kind of like an art installation on the side of the legislature where people could leave sticky notes with their thoughts um, and things like that. And then it just swelled when the train started running around 6 a.m. and uh, it became just rapidly over 10,000 people by mid-afternoon. And then, um, you know, then, then the police came in and cleared everything and drove everyone out. And there were standard groups throughout um, through the night, going through the night. They moved to Central, which is another district of Hong Kong. And there was the thought of maybe just camping out there overnight, but eventually most demonstrators decided to disperse and go back home and save the supplies they had for later. And, um, you know, it's a question now what will happen. I think that the next time the bill, they claim the bill is to be voted on next Thursday now. And so there's some time before then. I mean, that also, depending on your view of it, it might actually still represent the bill being sped up in the process of which it's being passed. But there's still time to plan action. And it just remains to be seen what action will uh, kind of gain people's attention. Uh, for example, yes, on Wednesday, uh, it was claimed that there'd be a general strike of Hong Kong society. That didn't happen because not enough businesses uh, signed on to the strike. But um, that was the idea that took hold in the absence of other ideas until this kind of protest attempt to recreate an occupation just randomly happened. I've been following, you know, the content. Yeah, so I think it's very unclear right now. It's kind of a fluid situation. I'm sorry about that. Um, well, first of all, thank you. Uh, I, I've been following, you know, your content on New Bloom uh, and sort of like your uh, your stuff on Facebook. And uh, I was reading a little bit on the BBC. It sounds as if, you know, the protests were largely peaceful, but that the reaction to that was not so peaceful and that police were using rubber bullets and tear gas. Uh, did you witness any of that? Yeah, I did. Um, I didn't see the, the rubber bullets being fired myself, um, but I was in the middle of all the tear gas. Um, I breathed in a lot of it and, you know, tears streaming down, uh, you know, running nose, coughing, you know, burning sensation. You feel a burning sensation on your skin. Something like that. I was in the thick of that um, because, you know, I was up in front taking pictures and that kind of thing. Um, yeah, the police response was very disproportionate. It just suddenly occurred around, let's say, 3 or 4 p.m. Uh, there was not a lot of warning. There was not a lot of escalation. It just happened because I think the police have adopted a mentality that the protesters are their enemy, that they have to take very strong actions against the protesters in order to, um, you know, just uh, to nip this, this kind of protest in the bud. And the police have, they don't, you know, for example, um, during the brother movement very early on, there were attempts to outreach to police by demonstrators, saying that you are Hong Kong citizens too, we're actually on the same side, and so don't treat us as your enemy. You should be with us and not on the side of the authorities. But these kind of appeals have not worked. Um, they did not work in the umbrella movement. And now you see even kind of this hardening of, uh, of uh, police action towards demonstrators, not only in the use of the force, but also the targeting of, for example, journalists or young people. And these random searches conducted, which uh, people that look like protesters on the subway might be stopped and, you know, that they take down their ID and, and they search their bag and ask them how to do certain things. Um, for example, a film crew was also stopped because they were wearing all black, um, you know, black to avoid reflection when they were filming uh, on their own clothing. But then, you know, it's like, like, well, why are you here? Why are you covering this? Whatever. Um, you know, there's another uh, report of a journalist being told by the police that, you know, don't think you're special because you're a journalist. Uh, there's another report that's actually uh, confirmed of a journalist from Macau, despite the fact that his press credentials were being were very evident, being just kind of hosed down and pepper sprayed by police. Yes, yeah. so I, uh, on that point, I know I asked you something similar last time, 
Um, but you're talking about in China, like the suppression of free speech, the um, suppression or even jailing of people who are seen as uh, you know almost sub- subversive or dissidents. Uh, you are a journalist yourself, and though I think you're speaking the truth, uh, if it's you know painting Chinese actions in a somewhat negative light, uh, do you fear? <laughs> do you fear for your own? I mean, and again, I'm not saying that what you're writing is skewed, but I'm I'm, I'm certainly like they wouldn't potentially want, well, you know. I'm on a media blacklist in China, I mean, for that. Um, for example, I can't publish in Chinese publications. Really? Uh, which blacklist? There are more than one blacklist circling around between different kinds of media um, and between uh, different regions of China, I believe. But, uh, I mean, I've been approached by Chinese publications right before, and I've been happy to do that, you know, about issues happening mostly in Taiwan. And then at the last stage of publication, they find that I'm actually on the blacklist, so they can't publish my article. Which also makes me wonder why they didn't check that first. Uh, you know, that seems like a the first thing you should do in the publication process, so I don't go and write this article first. But, uh, um, yeah, yeah, and so I think uh, for me even that's kind of concern. Like, for example, this new extradition treaty, um, you know, China considers Taiwanese as Chinese citizens. Uh, I sometimes, I'm not, I might not even be in Hong Kong, but I might just be transiting through the airport. According to this new extradition treaty, it's actually possible that then China can drag me off the plane and send me to China to face charges for advocating separatism or something like that. I don't think it would ever get to that point. I think that I'm also still small fry um, when in the bigger scheme of things. It'd be like lightning striking. But the danger is there. The possibility is there now. And so that is a deeply frightening thing. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it, previously when we had talked about Taiwan, we talked about this sort of generational split with voting and with sentiments about being... Um, a separate state versus uh, being incorporated into China. And that goes along like cons- conservative, liberal, older, younger lines. When talking about Hong Kong, I heard you mention a couple times that protesters were uh, younger folks. Is there a sentiment in Hong Kong as well where uh, there's a split between like who wants to be protesting and who is going along with, um, with the bill and with sort of uh, like Chinese authority? That's a good question. Um, I think that, uh, for example, the march on Sunday, um, there's a very large protest which involved over one million people. Um, it is thought this might be the largest protest in Hong Kong history. And if it really was one million, one million people, that is one in seven members of the Hong Kong population. And so that is a very broad swath of society. And I think it is cross-class, um, cross-age, and so forth. But I think that in general, with protest actions and things of that nature, it is usually young people that take the lead. Um, you know, they are much more willing to take uh, uh, dramatic, you know, risky actions or to stay overnight um, and camp out there and that kind of thing. And, you know, maybe old people don't have the stamina for that. Or it is that just young people are inclined to take more risks. A lot of people, I think, um, you know, when protest uh, activity is most intense for many activists, it is when they are informed the periods of their life, such as college or um, high school or, um, they, you know, graduates on the older side. But it is generally, it is oftentimes near 20. And so it is actually quite interesting that a lot of the protesters that you're seeing now might have actually been too young to participate in the umbrella movement. Um, a lot actually do look to be between 18 and 25. Uh, there's a statistic, I think, uh, I think it was like the people that were injured on one of the nights of the protest, and I think like 80% or something like that were between 18 and 25. Um, so that is quite striking. Um, again, I, I'm just going to keep saying thank you. Cause like you are really, uh, <laughs> I mean, you're educating me here. Also people listening, obviously, but, um, you know, this is a really fascinating stuff for me. Uh, it's interesting because this is getting a lot of coverage right now in the States. Um, there's like 
a massive, uh, I don't even know how you label it, like civil war happening right now in Sudan, which is like not getting that mm. much press at all. Um, I've been trying to get somebody to to talk about that on the podcast. I think finally next week, I think somebody's coming on. But mm. how do you um, like assess the mainstream media's treatment about what's going on in Hong Kong? Are, are they getting things right? Um, is it biased? Like, do you pay attention to that at all? That's a good question because I think uh, I actually haven't paid too much attention. I've just been too sucked into that to the ground. And so um, it's not actually very clear to me that uh, what mainstream media is reporting on Hong Kong. Because I think for me, I try to be much more detailed and, and have a lot of extraneous details that I think your average reader might not care much about. Um, but I think that, you know, generally is framed in terms of this issue of democracy versus authoritarianism, which is maybe a simplification, but also does hit on the core issues. Um, and I think that uh, a lot of it is framed, too, by the fact that the 38th anniversary of Tiananmen Square was, was earlier this month. And so there's this kind of concern that nurse the umbrella movement this time around, that this time the Communist Party will really come into force. Uh, things have gotten a lot worse in the five years since the umbrella movement in 2014. Uh, for example, the detention of one million Uyghurs in Xinjiang, that's a new development in the past few years that didn't occur, uh, that wasn't a thing during the umbrella movement. Um, you know, with Chinese President Xi Jinping having power and uh, taking China back towards the path of authoritarianism. Um, one remembers that the umbrella movement, when that took place, he was only in power for about two years. And so things have gotten a lot worse in the seven seven years he's been in power. Um, yeah. Wow. Um, I'm wondering sort of, um, and, and maybe this is like a little too conspiratorial, but I'm wondering maybe about the timing of this bill. And if this was done strategically and that, uh, you know, it's going to be a domino effect and there's going to be more bills that follow, uh, because I, I would have to assume that China would know that there would be protests and know that there would be a strong reaction to this. Uh, do you think this is part of like a larger scheme towards that sort of like authoritarian push that you're talking about? That's a good question as well. I think that is a coincidence uh, because it was just uh, the bill is about a murder incident that took place last year. Uh, it has to do with Taiwan, actually, because there's two Hong Kong students that went vacationing in, in Taiwan, a boyfriend and a girlfriend, and the boyfriend killed the girlfriend and uh, left her body there. Whoa. And so, uh, you know, when, when Hong Kong, in Hong Kong, the missing uh, person's report was filed, Taiwanese police investigated, and they questioned the kid who was still in Taiwan, and they eventually found the body. Um, and the question then is, then, how do you uh, punish this kid illegally? Because Taiwan has no extradition treaty with Hong Kong, and so... Hong Kong uh, police had to detain him on charges of stealing a girl's wallet rather than on charges of murdering her because there's no way to extradite himself back to Taiwan to face, to face charges, which is usually how this thing works. And so that's when this notion of an extradition treaty uh, began to arise because Hong Kong does actually lack treaties with many countries. It does have a treaties with some, and sometimes there are kind of informal arrangements in which it does send people back to certain countries for them to face punishment, uh, for example, in their home countries. But... Um, you know, the notion of formalizing this came after that case. But I think that, you know, China just jumped onto it. It is an opportunity. Um, these kind of incidents do happen periodically. And so I think China will use one as justification to uh, take, you know, certain actions that will reduce the amount of freedoms Hong Kong has. Or just, uh, you know, some people view this, this, this bill as maybe even marking the end of Hong Kong. Because then you can just, there's a Chinese city that if you can be arrested at any time deported to China, it might as well be a Chinese city. And so I just think it's, a, you know, just the Chinese government saw the case, saw it as an opportunity, latched onto it, um, and so forth. But, you know, so I don't know if it's actually all that deliberate either. It might just be kind of organic as a development. 
at a it ended up being the prohibition camp could push for the law having such wide and sweeping effects. I mean, yeah, I mean, I could totally just see another case in which, you know, Taiwan and Hong Kong just legalized an extradition treaty. It's like, okay, well, you know, the next time around when someone, uh, when two Hong Kongers come to Taiwan and one kills the other, then we'll send them back, send back to Taiwan if they start. Like, that's not too hard. It doesn't need to touch on China. But then it has. And so that's the interesting thing. Wow, man. Have you been approached at all by, you know, any sort of, you know, I, I remember last time you said that you had spoken before for the BBC, but are any major media outlets like seeking uh, for someone there on the ground? Because like, again, like what you're saying is far more detailed than a lot of the yeah, stuff that I've been there, reading. there are media outlets here. Um, I think uh, for me, it's, uh, well, I mean, it's, I think a mainstream media uh, is present in Hong Kong in large numbers because of the fact that a lot of media outlets, uh, big ones, have their China bureaus in Hong Kong or their Asia bureaus. Um, it's a question if they can maintain that in the future because of the fact that press freedoms are getting worse. And so maybe that can move elsewhere. Uh, for that reason, actually, Reporters Without Borders opened up its Asia office in Taiwan rather than Hong Kong. Um, but, you know, Hong Kong makes the better choice usually because it is more well-connected, it's more international. And so there are a lot of journalists there. Um, but I also think that, uh, for example, for me, I mean, I have a Taiwanese perspective on this. Uh, it's probably better, I think, to get a Hong Kong perspective on things. I tend to be much more detailed because, uh, you know, social movements are my specialty. Uh, I've been following social movement developments in Hong Kong for a very long time. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I have been approached uh, by some major reporters. Uh, I should name name them, but it, it has surprised me. Yeah. Apart from that, just, uh, I mean, this is the third podcast interview I'm doing today, so... Wow. This is like the third hour of uh, interviews today. <laughs> well, I mean, also, yeah, and I won't keep that much longer. I mean, at this point, so people who are listening know it is four in the morning <laughs> um, in Taiwan yeah. right now. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I have a flight at, uh, at, at 8 a.m. to catch. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm doing my laundry, too. Oh, that's so wild. All right, then you know what? I'm really going to ask, like, maybe one more. Um, okay. Let me try to, like, uh, articulate this correctly. Um Mm. sort of ongoing there uh, is a situation in the Gulf of Oman where uh, tankers were torpedoed. One of those mm. tankers is, um, I believe, Taiwanese like state-owned uh, oil or utilities company. Um, yeah. Mm. I, I don't know if this is being an alarmist, or again, or being like conspiratorial or being a little bit nutty, but this all almost feels kind of Cold War to me because you have this sort of, you know, um, America and Western Europe alliance. And now, well, I don't, I guess you'd have to argue if China has any real allies, but, um, you know, there's sort of like China, Russia, North Korea, Iran coalition, potentially. Right, of course. Um, but yeah, I mean, do you see this, uh, do you see maybe like China's actions having a a global consequence? Like, do you, or is this all just sort of like um, I don't know, like political football stuff, right? Where it's like um, it's never going to actually come to a head, but like countries are are going to take their digs at each other where they can. It's hard. I think it's hard to figure out that question. Because the question is always then uh, we live in a very post Cold War paradigm in which the major superpower of the world did not actually fight directly with each other, but used various proxies to do so. And so the question with this, I think, is it a proxy war? Um, you know, America has become increasingly aggressive towards Iran recently. And uh, just at the same time as, you know, John Bolton, who also hawk on Iran and everything else under the sun, is also pushing for uh, more relations against China. 
And I think that then in this, these circumstances, the countries that are targeted by the U.S. do tend to band together. And then you have Taiwan, which is one of the client states of the U.S., of which there are many in the Asia Pacific. And so then you have this tanker there. And so it's targeting Taiwan as a proxy, you know, way to get at America. And I think it's also a question sometimes when Chinese actions are directed towards Taiwan. I mean, Taiwan, you know, I mean, China does obviously want Taiwan as part of its territory. But there's some times in which it actually does seem that the action is less geared towards Taiwan and the Taiwanese public as it is geared towards, um, you know, the, the um, America, just as a, a message to try to send a message to America through Taiwan as a stand-in for, for uh, America. And so that's one of those interesting things. I mean, you see that with Japan, too, and this kind of historical China-Japan uh, enmity. But also Japan is a client state of America. So that's another reason why China is concerned about Japan. And so the actions against Japan are not always on the basis of nationalism or uh, the history of, um, you know, bad blood between China and Japan, but also have to do with the U.S. And so that's one of those interesting things. I mean, with that, uh, with the tanker incident, I think the reports are very early. I can't really judge. And it's also just very hard to figure out when you just look at these reports from afar. And so that's, a, that's an open question to me. But I think these are always the questions that are worth keeping in mind when you're evaluating these kind of situations. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Uh, Brian, thank you so much. Um, everybody thank should you. head over to New Bloom. Um, also, your articles on Popular are always really, really interesting. So I like those. <laughs> I um, throw one on Hong Kong for them. Uh, just ended in actually. Oh, awesome. Yeah, so I'll link to that stuff like I did last time. Um, everyone needs to go check you out. Again, thank you, Brian. And like, please, <laughs> please be careful, man. Get some sleep. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And maybe we'll, uh, maybe we'll do part three one day, but hopefully there's not uh, more crazy stuff happening that I need uh, clarified for me, but likely it'll be, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it'll be the case. I hope so too. All right. Uh, yeah, th- thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks so much, man. Safe flight today. Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. All right, folks, that is a wrap on episode number 116 of The Voyages of Tim Vetter. Many, many, many thanks to Brian Hyo for coming on this podcast for the second time. How many people have I had on twice? I think, I think he's just the third person I've had on multiple times, so that's a pretty cool accolade. Um, yeah, go to the show notes for this episode, check out Brian, check out the Patreon link Right after this outro here, I'm going to have a song played for you. This is by a Taiwanese indie rock band called The Fur, and the song is Blueberry. If you don't remember that, you can either rewind 10 seconds, or you can go to the show notes and you'll see the name of this song there as well. Okay, folks, T-minus two weeks until I am in Morocco. I'm going to have a few podcast episodes come out before that time. But until then, folks, please take care of each other. Catch you next time.